Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter. And I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor at Third Sector, the leading title for people working in the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. This week, we'll be talking about a need for a shift in public perception of the roles of charity in society. And Lucinda will be taking you for a walk around the Chelsea Flower Show to find out how a handful of selected charities are using gardens to further their causes. But first, we would like to tell you about a very exciting event coming up. It's the Third Sector Fundraising Summit, happening on the 6th and 7th of June in central London. And among other things, we'll be featuring Third Sector's very first live podcast recording, which will be coming out in the second week of June. So watch this space. Yes, we are excited about that. It feels like a little bit like when they first did live soap opera recordings of like EastEnders and Coronation Street and they did it live. Did you see that? Maybe <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> you're not all over pop culture, are you generally? But uh, they did do them live. It feels a little bit scary like that. But I'm sure, you know, listeners will know that we never have to re-record any of our lines when we record these in the studio. So I'm sure it'd be absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, broad broadly, the Third Sector Fundraising Summit is taking place in 6th and 7th of June. It's basically for people working for charities for all sizes we're going to be talking about a range of issues in fundraising now we've got great speakers lined up and you can get tickets to attend for small charities from just 95 pounds which is um i would say a bargain price as long as you get lunch and lots of coffee you definitely get lunch yeah yeah it's included for more information go to thirdsectorfundraisingsummit.com and we hope to see you there Our main feature of this week's episode is to look at the role and positioning of the voluntary sector in society today. Joining us for the discussion is Craig Bennett, Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trusts. Craig is a passionate environmentalist and has been described by The Guardian as the very model of a modern eco-general. He was previously Chief Executive of Friends of the Earth and is a Senior Associate of the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. Craig is also a member of the Charity Reform Group, formed of 11 charity leaders convened by the Sheila McKechnie Foundation, who are committed to using their voice and influence to further the reforming of civil society. Hello, Craig. Hello there. Nice to be joining you. Well, thank you very much for joining us. So could we start perhaps by talking about the Charity Reform Group? You're now in your second year, I understand. What are you trying to achieve and how? Well, really, it was a group of chief execs that came together, really frustrated how in the debate over actually the last decade or so, there's been a real attempt by some in politics to try and, uh, I'm sure as they would see it, put charities in their place. Uh, to we, we had that phrase from the charities minister about 10 years ago, who said that charities should stick to their knitting, if you remember that, which I think was an attempt to try and say charities should keep out of public debate. But I think for us, the chief execs that have formed this that range from Matt Downey at Crisis and Paul Farmer, formerly at Mind, of course, now Age UK, Polly Neat at Shelter and Harriet Oppenheimer at uh, RNID, for example, and Chris Sherwood at RSPCA and, and several others as well. Really, we've come together to say a key part of the role of charities is to inform and help shape the national debate around a whole range of issues. And that actually that is part of our knitting, if you like. It always has been a proud part of the history of charities is to shape and engage in the wider public debate. 
And certainly if we're going to achieve our charter objectives, that's what we should be doing. We should be big and bold and confident in doing that. And, and actually, if you say that charities can only stick to very narrow siloed interests and can only really talk about on the ground projects and so on, you're missing a big part of not only how charities can deliver their charter objectives, but also societies missing out of the experience, the unique experience that charities have about how to deliver change. So who is your sort of core audience that you're trying to lobby? Is it the general public or is it the politicians and senior decision makers? It's not the general public, no, but as much as anything, yes, it's senior decision makers and politicians and also parts of the media, but to be frank, parts of the charity sector as well. We want to sort of stimulate a debate in the charity sector and build confidence in the charity sector to engage in that wider societal debate. I mean, I'll give you an example of the kind of work we've been doing. We found ourselves reflecting about how on those kind of classic political media programs, things like BBC Question Time or Any Questions or Peston or any of those kind of ones, we did a review or the Sheila McKechnie Foundation did it on, on our behalf to actually look at how often chief execs from the charity sector appear on those programs. And we found it was just over a certain time period, it was just 2% of the guests on those kind of political programs were from the charity sector. This was five times less than academics and half of those from business. I mean, you hardly ever have an episode of Question Time, say, where there's not a business lead on the panel and fine for them to be on there. But I mean, should it be the case that there's hardly any ever anyone from the charity sector contributing to the debate of the day as well. And all too often, even when charity representatives are brought on to those programmes, it's to talk about a very narrow siloed issue Mm -hmm. rather than to see how our agenda can connect up and holistically help a discussion about what needs to happen in society to improve the situation in society and and for the nation as a whole. And we think there's so much more that charities can contribute to that wider debate, and we shouldn't be scared of doing so. Uh, And that's really what we, that's the debate we want to kind of provoke uh, by coming together. Um, Certainly, we're finding it useful as uh, charity leaders from lots of different sections of, of the charity sector, covering a whole range of issues, coming together, having those kind of conversations. And how do you think the sector as a whole can better position itself to become a more prominent voice in national conversations? Well, I think a lot of it is summarised by my sort of aversion to the pushback that sometimes happens, which is suggesting that charities shouldn't be political, because that's entirely wrong. It's often summarised, oh, well, no, the Charity Commission says charities can't be political. It doesn't say that at all. It says we can't be party political, and that's quite right. It would be entirely wrong for us ever to advocate that people should support one party or another. But of course, I would say pretty much everything we do is political with a small p in one sense or another, particularly if you look at the sort of older definition of the word political, which is engaging in that debate in society about you know how to resolve certain problems and, and, and issues. And to that extent, everything we do is political. And I think one of the things that's happened, particularly over the last decade or so, is ironically, sometimes when charities have felt quite fearful of being called political, actually, we've taken the political decision to hold back and not tell the truth about situations. And very often, those commentators, those newspapers, sometimes trustees that say that we shouldn't say something, we shouldn't get involved in certain debate because we don't want to be political, that in itself is arguably one of the most political things that could be done. You know, I've had special advisors before now say to me that the Wildlife Trust should not say a certain thing. 
because it's being political. It's not being political, we're just telling the truth about the state of the natural world. I know other chief execs, for example, in the working for children's charities that have been told by special advisors they shouldn't talk about children's poverty yeah. because that's too political. I mean, I think that's a complete and utter nonsense. If you end up with a children's charity not being able to talk about children's poverty, that surely is the most political decision you can make not to talk about it. And often you sometimes have trustees will say, oh, I, I you know, are worried about uh, offending friends of theirs. So they might say, oh, we can't talk about such and such an issue. That is a political decision. I think what we have to do is, as charities, as charity chief execs, is tell the truth about what's happening in society based on science and evidence that we find and our experience as charity leaders about this is what's happening. And that's not a party political decision to do so. That's us sharing our information, our expertise and our evidence to help inform the public debate. And we should not be scared of doing that as charity leaders. And to what extent do you think your role in the charity reform group is to do with lobbying the media as well? Because obviously you've referenced it in terms of the headlines that we've seen. In fact, we were talking in the office just last week about one particular print publication that has run a series of stories basically with the same headline, charities should stay out of politics. What's the CRG's role in that regard? We absolutely want to try and inform and help shape thinking the media about the role of charities. And I think those kind of headlines are entirely wrong, where they say charities should stay out of politics. I mean, if there's evidence of charities really engaging in party politics and telling people how to vote, that's a different issue. But I'm not aware of those examples. I'm aware of charities just, as I said, gathering the evidence and trying to inform the public debate. And so I don't see that there's anything wrong about that. And there's nothing that goes against charity commission guidance in doing that either. So I think we've got to be very clear about that. And I think part of what the Charity Reform Group is trying to do is stimulate a debate in the media about that and to actually make sure there's a much better, more rounded, more three-dimensional understanding within the media about the role of charities. And the only engagement that the media seems to have at times around charities is just around our project work that we do and not really understanding that actually these are, in many cases, multi-million pound organisations with thousands of employees, that actually we have the same stresses and strains that small or medium size or even large businesses will have, that there is there should be representation and engagement in the public debate about the charity sector per se as an employer and how we engage in, in schemes like that as well. There just seems to be this very one-dimensional view of charities in the media very often, which is just about the work we do, the impact we have, which is great, but it doesn't seem to go beyond that. And when it when it does happen, it also very siloed. And it's all seems to be very often it's all about keeping us in our box, <laughs> as opposed to actually opening up for that wider contribution to society that we can make. And do you think that that media representation is representative of the wider public view on the role of charities? And is it wrong? Well, I mean, a lot of the wider public view that they get of charities will come from the media. Yeah. So I think it feeds that and it keeps supporting that sort of lack of wider understanding from the public about charities. Although, actually, I think probably there's a much better understanding in the public more widely than actually parts of the media. Because the media do like to simplify things and they like to categorise and, and, and put people and issues and organisations in particular boxes I think actually when you look at the millions and millions of people 
across this country that are engaged and work with charities one form or another, either because they work for charities or their members are supporters of charities, or of course, the millions of volunteers of the charity sector across this country as well. I think actually, probably, many people at grassroots level will have a much better understanding of charities than people certainly in classic London-based political media. It'd be helpful if you could just tell us a little bit about what the Charity Reform Group is kind of doing practically in terms of how often do you meet, how does that work, and you know what are your sort of key points moving forward? So we meet a handful of times a year. It's not always entirely defined, but you know when we can manage to do that and, and have these very interesting cross-charity sector conversations. And we also do bring in external speakers and guests sometimes for those meetings as well. So exactly the kind of thing we're looking to do is to start to convene meetings with newspaper editors and and others in the media as well, and sometimes former newspaper editors as well, because they can just help us understand some of the challenges and help shape the debate around charities as well. We are in the next year looking to convene more kind of public events where we can bring in people from across the charity sector, not necessarily just those that, that work for the charities of the members of the charity reform group, to stimulate debates on some of the topics we've just been talking about, where they will be much more open to a wider set of representatives from the charity sector to come along and to hear from the debate and be able to contribute to it and ask questions and so on. Because we do want to stimulate this kind of wider discussion about how charities can more fully contribute to society in a more rounded way rather than just in our in our individual little, little issue silos. And how have you taken any sort of ideas or learnings through being a member of the charity reform group back to the wildlife trusts? Well, I think one of them is is for me to feel really confident that, you know, our approach that we're having at the Wildlife Trust, which is about trying to be bold and confident in how we engage in public debate is the right one. I mean, of course, the Wildlife Trust is a a federation of 47 individual trusts. Overall, our combined turnover across the Wildlife Trust is over 200 million. We have almost a million members, of course, representing pretty much all parts of society one way or another. And we do want to be able to engage more roundly in the public debate. You know, you cannot hope to solve the nature crisis unless we tackle the climate crisis or indeed tackle issues of inequality or indeed looking at health and social well-being. This is all very relevant to the tackling the nature crisis as well, looking at how it interacts with the economy and so on. We think that one of the best ways you can relieve pressure on the NHS, for example, is to make more space for nature and increase the ability of people, particularly in poorest communities, to get out into healthy nature. And not everyone will make those connections. We've got tons of evidence that shows how actually that will make a difference for the NHS. But that the link between putting nature in recovery and how that can help the NHS is probably poorly understood in the wider public debate at the moment. And that's exactly the kind of debate we want to engage in, whereas all too often media outlets will come to us when they've, they want to talk about hedgehogs or something, which is all very nice, but we want to go beyond that. And so we want to really make sure that at the local level, at the regional level, and of course national, that we can engage in those wider public policy debates. And I mean, you are a heavyweight in the sector as a federation, as are the vast majority of the other charities represented in the Charity Reform Group. But what are your views on how smaller charities can be better involved in the national conversation? And, you know, for a small charity leader who's who's listening to this conversation now, what would your advice be on how they can get more involved? Well, in a way, that is 
really kind of fundamental to the thinking and inspiration as to why we pulled the charity reform group together in the first place because we recognize there's a kind of a particular duty if you like on on the larger charities to be able to do this thinking and to try and shake this debate up on behalf of everyone in the charity sector you know if you are running a small medium-sized charity and actually of course the wildlife trust contains many small medium-sized charities so i think you know i have a, a decent understanding of this all too often, you're just absolutely crazy busy every day just trying to deal with the here and now. Yeah. And we fully respect and understand that. And actually, many of those chief execs, many of the chairs and the trustees of those charities won't have much space or bandwidth to be able to fully understand charity commission regulations around political debates. They won't have the bandwidth to think about where the boundaries are and some of this debate, or more to the point where they're not. And so when actually there's broad brush attacks on charities for being too political in some parts of the media, often those smaller charities are the ones that understandably will be at the the real leading edge of the chill effect. They're the ones that will pull back and hold back because they're not entirely sure where the space is on that. So for members of the Charity Reform Group, we are very conscious that if we can give the charity sector leaders as a whole, whether they're chief execs or chairs or whoever, real confidence that it's right to engage in these wider societal debates, then actually we hope that therefore the chief execs of smaller charities will be confident to speak up and share the incredible experience and knowledge they have of what works on the ground and what doesn't. And we need surely our public policy debate to be informed by people that have knowledge from the ground as to what's working and what's not. And if they're not automatically the ones who are called upon to comment on whatever situation is being talked about in the news, then presumably it requires a a level of proactiveness to make sure that they're speaking to the right people, to make sure that they're putting out their messaging on social media, on their website, whatever. Do you have any suggestions on how to raise their visibility? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're really trying to do is shine a spotlight on the contribution the charity sector can make as a whole, particularly at the small local level, but also at the national level, about how there's so much to contribute beyond just these kind of siloed issues, which is how so often individual charities will get perceived. And there's also a difference between what's very important to do, of course, is making time and space and giving platforms for beneficiaries, particularly frontline communities and directly affected individuals and so on. Of course, we need to do that. But we also need to hear also from the from the chief execs, the managers in small charities. It's not like these are the only people in these debates that shouldn't have a voice. They should have a voice. So we want to absolutely give people the space to do that and the confidence to do it, but also uh, increasingly just try and get the media and others to recognise that there are incredible voices there and there's a, a very important story to be heard. In terms of the end game for the Charity Reform Group, what impact do you see it having? What does success look like for you? And how do you ensure that it kind of delivers that rather than just becoming a bit of a talking shop? Yeah, I mean, I think for success for us is that charities are feeling confident that they can fully engage in the local and national debates that society is having across a whole range of issues and that actually whether it's the media or politicians or policymakers or whatever are seeking out charities for the evidence as to what would work and what doesn't work and for the perspectives and evidence that we can bring 
rather than any kind of suggestion that that charities should just keep quiet and stick to their knitting, which is actually, of course, the message we've heard a lot at times over the last decade. I think what we fear is if that kind of narrative about sticking to the knitting goes unchallenged, then actually charities will be forever chilled and more and more chilled and put in their box. And that actually is not good for our beneficiaries. It's not good for the role of charities and therefore it's not good for wider society as well. And so for us, success looks like is is charities playing a full and valued part in the public debate about, you know, the future direction of the country and how we solve some of the biggest problems we face today. At the moment, we feel that there's sometimes quite deliberate attempts to limit the role of charities in that debate. And that would be wrong. And I think as a charity reform group, we'll probably review year on year as to the progress we're making and think, it's, are there different ways we need to try and shape this up to deliver greater impact? You're obviously working in the environmental space as well. And in terms of campaigning, obviously, you will have be well aware of the direct action that some environmental groups have been taking in terms of gluing themselves to trains and sitting on tables at the World Snooker Championship and this sort of thing. To what extent can more mainstream charities sort of take lessons from that? Should they be paying more attention to what those groups are doing and maybe emulating them? Yes, I think it's a very nuanced point, this. I think when Extinction Rebellion, for example, first emerged about five, six years ago, and its first year or two, it made a huge difference. It really kind of woke everyone up. It was Extinction Rebellion that was first socialised, if you like, the use of the phrase climate and nature emergency. We weren't really using that phrase before then in the in the wider environment charity sector, and they made it right to do so. And that was a huge contribution. They definitely built that, brought that sense of urgency. And I think in those first couple of years, a lot of the activities by Extinction Rebellion were looked like something people wanted to be part of. They were very friendly and welcoming and it was good fun. And, you know, some of those first protests in London were something that kind of grew with ever more people getting involved. And that was really good. And I think to my mind, that's kind of indication of what those activities can look like when done well. And I think, you know, I fully understand just when you look at the state of nature, you look at the scientific evidence about how serious the climate crisis is. I understand people's deep frustrations about trying to push it hard and trying to find other methods. But but ultimately, we've got to use methods that work. And that means, amongst other things, ones that continue to build public support for deeper action. And I worry about activities that actually risk losing us public support on this more wider agenda, when actually the problem we've got at the moment is the need to really translate that support into action and make sure we bring everyone with us on what will be a very significant transition that's got to happen to tackle the climate and nature crisis. So I think always when you look at the history of direct action and what works and what doesn't work, it's kind of a finely nuanced point. And broadly, it's does it build public support? or not. And I worry when people sometimes focus on the means rather than the ends, because ultimately we should focus on the ends. Are we achieving greater public support? Are we delivering the impact? And I think within that also, there's another point about respecting that actually we are sometimes at our most successful when we have a range of approaches that complement each other, rather than suggesting everyone has to be doing exactly the same thing. I think one of the strengths of the environmental movement historically has been that you get everyone from Extinction Rebellion sort of at one end of a spectrum through to what you might consider, I don't know, National Trust or WF at the other end of of a spectrum, and they all complement each other in a certain way. 
sometimes there's kind of attempts to suggest that we should all be doing exactly the same thing. I think we should do things that reinforce each other. I don't think it means we should all be doing the same thing. Mm, very interesting points. Craig Bennett, Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trusts, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Great to join you. We hope you enjoyed that discussion with Craig. Some very thought-provoking points, not least around his uh, take on direct action Mm. in the environmental space. It's time to go on to the next part of the episode, and I'm off, actually. I am going to the Chelsea Flower Show, which is a great hardship. Um, So (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking one for the team in this department. I have arrived at the Chelsea Flower Show and here to welcome me is Hattie Gowie. Hello, Hattie. Hello, Lucinda. Great to have you. You are the Chief Executive of Project Giving Back. Could you just tell me what is Project Giving Back and what are you doing here? So Project Giving Back is a philanthropic organisation. We were set up by two individuals um, who want to remain anonymous um, with the sole purpose of funding gardens for good causes at the Chelsea Flower Show. They felt that charities were going to be the worst affected by the pandemic and now we're seeing that with the cost of living crisis um, and they really wanted to invest their money in a way that helped charities bounce back and the Chelsea Flower Show for them has always been this amazing place that gets great media opportunity, great visitor engagement, um, and is is just a real boost for charities. And who have you brought here as part of the Project Giving Back? So this is our second year, um, and in 2023, we're funding 15 gardens. So you've got the likes of those big names like Samaritan, Centrepoint, um, and then we've got some smaller charities like Myloma UK. So a real range of charities that we've brought to the show this year. And how do these lucky charities get to be part of Project Giving Back? Yeah, so we run a funding process that's about six months long. This year we had just over 200 applications. And what is it that you're looking for in your partner charities? Yeah, it's it's a real mixture. I think the key thing is we want to work with charities that have... Um, either a really clear target of what they want to achieve in the next few years or they've, they're have they going through a transformation, they might be relaunching a new strategy or a new message or they might be celebrating an anniversary. Um, we want to know that they can get that core message across in a really short amount of time. It's also really important to us that the gardens aren't just at Chelsea, that they're relocated to a site around the UK. So we also want to know that there's a community space where that garden can go to and continue to benefit um, the, the charities, you know, beneficiaries. Great. Well, why don't we go and have a little look around some of the gardens? Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so we've come into the Royal Entomological Society's garden designed by Tom Massey. Hi Tom. So we are sitting in a very impressive structure. Can you tell me where we are? We are sitting inside a giant compound insect eye. It's made from lots of laser cut weathering steel panels bolted together and glazed with an iridescent film. So it's supposed to be representative of a compound insect eye and it's supposed to make you feel kind of small and uh, the scale is, is supposed to make you feel more like an insect. 
And have you designed any gardens at Chelsea before? I have, yes. I've done two gardens at Chelsea before, so this is my third. Every garden I've done has had a very strong message or theme. And I think having a charity involved where there's a clear charitable statement and a set of aims, that really helps to focus the garden. It gives the opportunity to talk about something that to me, I've always worked with charities uh, that I feel an affinity with, uh, you know, that whose cause uh, is something that I passionately believe in. So I really like the um, challenge of translating that cause or that message into a physical show garden space, you know, using plants, using materials, using structures to tell a story. My name is Kath Lawson and I'm Senior Programme Manager for Eastern Africa at Fauna and Flora. The garden here at Chelsea is um, a snapshot of Afro-Montane forests from Central Africa. And how have you managed to reproduce that in uh, <laughs> Chelsea's temperate climb? <laughs> So we've had a lot of help from the Eden Project in Cornwall and actually once the show is complete the people will be able to experience the garden we've got here today at the Eden Project as well. The garden is celebrating the work that Fauna and Flora has done for mountain gorilla conservation and so what we've tried to recreate in the garden here is the journey you would take if you were an ecotourist going to see mountain gorillas in the wild. Fantastic, well can we go up and have a little Absolutely. look? Absolutely. Great. Mind your step, it's a little bit steep. We've really tried to recreate the experience you would have if you were trekking to see mountain gorillas. <laughs> so if we go round to the left here, okay. you'll see on your right, we've actually recreated a mountain gorilla nest. So yes. each night mountain gorillas will create a nest either on the floor or in the trees. And then they'll sleep in there for the night before moving on for the next day when they'd make another nest the next night. They never sleep in the same bed twice? Very, very rarely. Yeah. It's a remarkable. Coming to Chelsea is a really great opportunity for us to reach new audiences and to explain to them the importance of conserving nature. The mountain gorilla story is one of conservation success and a, a big part of that reason is because people have been at the heart of that story and we really want to showcase to people what can be achieved in terms of conservation when people are at the heart of those solutions. I'm Ruth Gervan, chair of the Teapot Trust. Lovely to meet you and speak to you today. You too, and congratulations. I see there is a gold medal here. Yes, we're still on cloud nine. I'd like to say we're coming down a little bit, but we're not. The Teapot Trust is a art therapy charity. We do art therapy for children like my daughter who have a chronic invisible illness. There are many layers to this garden and I think that's um, really important. The garden depicts the calmness and the beauty and the magic because there's magical elements to this garden as well but doesn't avoid the more gnarly, more painful aspects that the child needs to talk about. And why did you decide to come to Chelsea? Um, so for a charity to come to Chelsea, we are a small Scottish charity um, and what Chelsea provides us with is that level of awareness that you can't get anywhere else. Um, I don't want any child and importantly their family to not be aware of us if they need us. And what being here, that provides us with that platform of awareness to be able to um, grow as well as a charity, but importantly, that everybody here may then know somebody who needs us at some point in the future, so they don't have to stumble across us, they know who to ring, who to access, and we can be there like they were, like Teapot Trust was for me, at that point where we need them the most. <laughs>
Okay, Hattie, so now we have arrived at a particularly special garden. Uh, care to tell us why? Yes, um, as Lucinda and I have been walking around, the Horatio's Garden has just won Best in Show. So we're standing here with Dr. Olivia Chapel, CEO of Horatio's Garden, with Charlotte and Hugo of Harris Bug Studio, who've designed the garden. Huge congratulations to all of you. Um, how does it feel? Uh, we're just completely overwhelmed, aren't we? Speechless. Not in our wildest <laughs> dreams did we think this would happen. And Olivia, what does this mean to you? Well, for the charity, it just means everything because we're about creating gardens for people, for people who've experienced life-changing spinal injuries. And to be able to um, showcase our work, um, to be able to spread the reach of and people understanding the needs for beautiful gardens for people who are in trauma in their lives, this is huge. Um, we're enormously grateful to Charlotte and Hugo for designing a garden that has reached the echelons of the best in show. It's, it's beyond our, our dreams. This garden is just completely different to any of the other gardens we've made because really people are at the heart before we even picked up a pencil we spent months and months talking to patients and doctors NHS staff about what they've thought we should prioritize in this garden there are a number of pathways in the garden which are at the right width to wheel beds through from a hospital ward and actually bringing things into a close and easy touch for people whether they're in a bed or a wheelchair so that as you come down these white slightly wider paths more comfortable paths very flat paths with no joints to avoid any pain to patients you can touch the water there's a raised water table and then we walk under a canopy of trees very kind of dappled cooling shade well what a fantastic note to end on talking to the team behind Horatio's Garden, which has just been announced as best in show, bringing to an end our tour of the Chelsea Flower Show and a selection of the gardens sponsored by Project Giving Back. That's it for this week. Join us again next week for another episode. Thank you to our guest, Craig Bennett, and our producer, Nav Powell.